0: Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that knows the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Today, we have Laura, Zoe, and Kellen. And today, we are once again, possibly against our better judgment, talking about elections. This week, as many of you know, uh, is election week, and that comes with some tension, hope, and general fuckery, particularly by capitalists. Capitalists. Wow, my mouth just really slurred all those letters together. I know we have discussed this before, but I do want us to do some coverage of the history of elections and voting and how this has always been a way for the state to act as a wing of capital, in addition to the people with the most power you know, white, wealthy, cis people, mostly men maintaining that power.
1: Yeah. I wanted to, um, read like the full quote from Audrey Lorde that that was the intro about the master's tools. Also, I have to share an anecdote that happened yesterday about this quote that I was in class and, um, the professor's like, uh, she has okay politics, which is for sure kind of a lib, you know, she's an academic anyway. Um, She brought this up, but she was like, you know, like the question Audre Lorde poses about like, if the master's tools can dismantle the master's house. And I was like, (laughs) she does not pose it as a question. It's a definitive statement.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God.
1: Yeah. And here's the quote, which is for sure a statement. Those of us who stand outside the circle of the society's definition of acceptable women, those of us who've been forged in the crucibles of difference, those of us who are poor, who are lesbians, who are black, who are older, know that survival is not an academic skill. It is learning how to take our differences and make them strengths. For the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And this fact is only threatening to those women who still define the master's house as their only source of support. She also talks about um, in this same speech, how it's a primary tool of the ruling class to occupy the oppressed with their concerns. And I think we see this a lot around elections um, with the libs who are like vote blue no matter who, and you know place a lot of blame on like poor people, working class people, people of color for like not voting or not voting in their best interest. Um, and like we know yeah that is always who gets blamed for like somehow ruining elections or whatever the fuck and um there's actually a really good scene about this after the 2016 election on the show blackish where essentially they were talking about how like no matter who won the election it was not going to change the material conditions for the most marginalized people
2: Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean it's like 2020 as well like our borders are still in like absolutely deplorable conditions. For example, we were Biden bucks were a scam. We're starting back up evictions and like uh, student loans are starting back up as well soon. Like Mm -hmm. it's just such a fucking joke, but it's also funny. This reminds me too about how a lot of the election results that we're going to end up talking about today are being used as like evidence that Biden is like, too far left and it's alienating people which is like okay like literally name one policy that he's enacted that's like a left policy like I'll wait like I'll literally wait anyway. the rest of the episode is just us sitting in silence just right in now. silence 55 more minutes I'm just us sitting in silence um yeah it's just so it's un believable but Anyway, I think we wanted to talk a little bit about some history and we have talked about the history of voting rights on the podcast before. And so I like I didn't want to spend a lot of time rehashing stuff from other episodes, but definitely like suffice it to say that elections have not been, you know, to use a phrase that we like to use a lot or the media likes to use, you know, free and fair in the United States for most of its history or arguably ever especially given like the continued prevalence of gerrymandering, like policies that forbid people who've been convicted of crimes from voting, like all of that kind of stuff. Um, As most people know, though, to do a little bit of history, like voting at the nation's inception was mostly but not exclusively confined to property holding white men. Um, It's worth noting as sort of a counterexample that property holding free black people and white women could vote in New Jersey until 1807 when that right was taken from them. Um, You know, on the other hand, though, and sort of moving in the opposite direction, white male suffrage gradually expanded over the course of the early republic's history. But the biggest leap forward in voting rights in the 19th century was, you know, of course, the 15th Amendment, which came during the post-Civil War Reconstruction era and which gave black men the right to vote. Obviously, and this is something else that we've talked about before on the podcast, like many states worked overtime to, you know, effectively rescind that right under Jim Crow. And um, we've talked about some of the strategies that they've used. Um, But again, to to make a long story very short, Black people were largely barred from voting in the South until the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965. And I know, Zoe, you wanted to talk some about like women's voting and, and that sort of thing.
1: I did want to talk (laughs) about, about the suffragettes, um, our foremothers or what many people refer to as like first wave feminism.
2: We are the daughters of the witches you couldn't burn. Oh
1: yeah. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. So the suffragettes were neither the first people to engage in feminism, uh, or the only feminists at the time, the waves as we refer to them in the U S and Europe are like very specifically tied to white liberal feminism.
0: Yeah. I love Uh, how Emma Goldman bashes on them, but I know we'll get there.
1: (laughs) I was going to say, we'll get to that (laughs) by definition, like liberal feminism means feminists that want to like reach equality with men within the structures that already exist versus creating new structures. Just want to be clear about that. This isn't me saying like, wow, those libs who wanted to vote or whatever, that's just like literally what the word means. Words mean things. Listeners know that this is something I care about, is that words have meaning. But I digress. It's yeah. um, very important. So, Zoe, would
2: you say that the suffragettes were the original girl bosses? Honestly, yes. <laughs> Great. Love that. 100%. As a future master of gender, <laughs> your opinion on this means a lot to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, pretty much the first girl bosses. They were like, we can vote um so yeah the the campaign for women's suffrage began in the decades prior to the civil war women played a prominent role in many of the social movements at the time most notably um the slavery abolition movement is where the suffragettes got a lot of their inspiration from since the abolition movement was raising questions of suffrage and full citizenship for black people the suffragettes saw space to like add white women's rights to that docket However, because women's suffrage advocates saw this as their chance to like push for universal suffrage, many actually refused to support the 15th Amendment and allied with some anti-abolition groups who argued that white women's votes could be used to neutralize Black people's votes. So just real winning arguments all around there. In 1869, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony started a group called the National Women's Suffrage Association to fight for universal suffrage. Some argued that it was unfair to um, endanger Black suffrage by tying it to the significantly less popular campaign for women's suffrage. But the pro-15th Amendment faction formed um, a separate, not racist group called the American Women's Suffrage Association, and they plan to fight for suffrage on a state by state basis.
2: Um, just to jump in here, it's worth yes. noting that just as a side note, many Western states um, allowed women to vote um, in statewide elections because they were trying to convince women to move out West because it was like really very difficult to get there from the east Eastern part of the country, the dangerous trip. If you've ever played Oregon trail, you know a little something about that. Um, and they thought one way to try to convince women and not just like have like a bunch of like men who are like eager to cut down trees, pan for gold and like realistically dispossess a lot of Native Americans was to give women the right to vote. So there was like during this period, women were voting in the Western states, but many of the people who were arguing for this, A, wanted to vote in the presidential election and B, weren't actually living in those Western states. Anyway, just wanted to jump in there with that little factoid. No,
0: thanks. thank you. It's also worth mentioning um, almost, you know, of equal importance of that, uh, that Susan B. Anthony is from and is buried in Rochester, New York, um, which is a sister city to Buffalo, which we're going to get to in a little bit. It feels <laughs> like, you know, the girl boss energy just radiates in <laughs> these rust Belt cities. Amazing.
1: Um, also important to note, Kellen is a doctor of history, if you didn't know. True. When I was, like, writing this history and I was, like, I hope Kelly adds to this because. No, uh, no, this is great. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Wonderfully. Thank you. The only thing I know about is gender. So thank you so much (laughs) for my moment to shine. So the two groups that I mentioned came together by 1890 and decided to change their approach. So rather than arguing that women deserve the same rights and responsibilities as men because they were, quote, equal to men, that they would argue that women deserve the right to vote because they were different, i.e. more pure than men. So this argument served several political agendas, but most notably many um, middle-class white people were swayed by the idea that allowing white women to vote would ensure immediate and durable white supremacy honestly attained that was a quote sound familiar like the whole like white women voted for trump what the fuck argument is like why white women were given the right to vote was that they yeah. would vote for fucking the trumps of the
0: world yeah <laughs> um it's it's a, a fucked up it's continued reality
1: yep So by 1910, states began to extend the right to vote to white women, and in 1916, the suffragette leader Carrie Chapman Catt announced her, quote, winning plan, which was a blitz campaign aimed to mobilize state and local suffrage organizations all over the country. Um, At that point, a splinter group called the National Women's Party, which had a lot more of an emphasis on direct action and uh, militant tactics were engaging in hunger strikes and white house protests um and yeah they splintered off because they were like yeah we don't think this whole talking to people and just being like but women are so pure is like really working well for us this is what like almost 100 years into the movement so they you know they thought maybe some new tactics could be employed. then when world war one started and You know, there's just really nothing like a little imperialism to prove that women can be just as patriotic patriotic, patriotic as men. And so women's work efforts during the war was also then used as another argument to prove that women deserved full citizenship because they were like helping with the war. So alas, on August 18th, 1920, the 19th Amendment was ratified. So happy, so happy for them. But yeah, so as Laura mentioned, wanted to also talk a little about Emma Goldman, who is one of the most notable critics of the women's suffrage movement and friend of the pod. Greg. My wife in another time, <laughs>
0: in another era,
1: in another era, co-host of the pod, Laura's wife.
0: Yeah,
1: let me. Pull well, up I guess not wife
0: because of what we know her thoughts on marriage are, but like the good point. the love that we would have for each other, it would burn for ages.
1: You would be in a polyamorous relationship just as she wanted. Yes. Okay, so this is from her essay called Woman Suffrage. Women demand for equal suffrage is based largely on the contention that women must have the equal right in all affairs of society. No one could possibly refute that if suffrage were a right. Alas for the ignorance of the human mind which can see a right in an imposition or is it not the most brutal imposition for one set of people to make laws that another set is coerced to coerced by force to obey? Yet woman clamors for that, quote, golden opportunity that has wrought so much misery in the world and robbed man of his integrity and self-reliance. An imposition which has thoroughly corrupted the people and made them absolute prey in the hands of unscrupulous politicians." The poor, stupid, free American citizen, free to starve, free to tramp the highways of this great country, he enjoys universal suffrage, and by that right, he has forced chains around his limbs. The reward that he receives is stringent labor laws prohibiting the right of boycott, of picketing, in fact, of everything except the right to be robbed of the fruits of his labor. Yet all these disastrous results of the 20th century fetish have taught woman nothing. But then... Woman will purify politics, we're assured. Needless to say, I'm not opposed to woman suffrage on the conventional ground that she is not equal to it. I see neither physical, psychological, nor mental reasons why women should not have the equal right to vote with man. But that cannot possibly blind me to the absurd notion that woman will accomplish that, wherein man has failed." If she would not make things worse, she certainly could not make them better. To assume, therefore, that she would succeed in purifying something which is not susceptible of purification is to credit her with supernatural powers. Since woman's greatest misfortune has been that she was looked upon as either angel or devil, her true salvation lies in being placed on earth, namely in being considered human and therefore subject to all human follies and mistakes. Are we then to believe that two errors will make a right? Are we to assume that the poison already inherent in politics will be decreased if women were to enter the political arena? The most ardent suffragettes would hardly maintain such a folly.
0: Mm. Mike drop. Fucking mic drop. <laughs> Ugh. Yeah. So that is very powerful. And also um, that's kind of like where we wanted to wrap up the history. But I will say like. As you are probably aware, money in politics has just absolutely skyrocketed, um, particularly since Citizens United um, in the early 2000s. And that the, the amount of influence that individuals have on elections has only continued to decrease um, over time with with the rise of other influences to our political system. So we wanted to talk a little bit about this week and what has been going on. And as many of you may be aware, (laughs) as I keep talking about, uh, the city I live in, Buffalo, um, has had a pretty major election this week. So Democratic Socialist India Walton won the Democratic primary this summer against four-term incumbent that's going on 17 years in office Byron Brown. Like, it's literally, at this point, a czarship in that he just has his pockets everywhere. Um, His hand in all the pockets, is what I mean to say. Unfortunately, um, she lost to him by a pretty significant margin, Um, but I really want to talk about this whole situation. Basically, Byron Brown did nothing to campaign around the primary election in June, just assuming he would win. He even refused to debate India Walton because he didn't even want to validate her existence. And as we've seen time and time again, when men lose in ways that are shocking to them, but unsurprising to most, they throw a tantrum. And that's basically what Byron Brown has done since then. He bribed a judge to allow himself to still be on the ballot on an independent line, which, once taken to higher um, courts—this was basically a tactic to drain the Walton campaign of funds—was overturned. So this meant that the only way that Brown could win the election was through a write-in campaign. Now, historically, very, very few candidates who have ever tried to win in on a write-in campaign have actually won. But Buffalo is actually a fairly conservative liberal city, so we knew that Brown's campaign actually stood a chance. I want to give some background on Buffalo because I feel like Rust Belt cities aren't very well understood by folks who don't live in them. And because with big names like AOC and Cynthia Nixon coming to Buffalo and backing the campaign, as well as Papa Bernie himself endorsing her campaign, it might feel confusing why the election went went the way that it did. Buffalo is the second largest city in New York state, second only to New York City, which yes, is a big ass discrepancy, but still, Buffalo and other cities throughout New York are often very underrepresented in New York state policies because the majority of the population lives in New York City. Buffalo is often defined by its dismal winter weather. It's like literally always the first thing that people ask me about when when they hear that I live here. And it's suffered a deteriorating Rust Belt econ- economy and a declining population. And for those who don't know what that means, it often means that the medium household income is at least 50% below national average. For me, my grandfather and his father worked at the steel plant, Bethlehem Steel, to make a living. Those factories shut down in the 80s, and any money that was coming into the city essentially stopped. I think people are more familiar with how this has happened in cities like Detroit, but it's basically the same across the Rust Belt. Buffalonian and professor of African-American studies, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, wrote this incredible article about this election and Buffalo in The New Yorker. And I felt like this quote was really important to share.
1: I did not know
0: that she was from Buffalo. Yes, yes. I've actually seen her speak multiple times because she, like, comes back here and she's always like, yeah. Oh,
1: Wow, the Rust Belt cities are prime for the girl bosses. Yes,
0: that's right. She's a good girl boss. Yeah, she's like an actual socialist. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Okay. Socialists can be girl bosses too. What? (laughs)
1: Zoe, words mean things. (laughs) I would say I'm a girl boss. Yeah. (laughs) Hell yeah. Just kidding. Words mean things. Socialists cannot be girl
0: bosses. Um, i'm
1: canceled go on no
0: you know we're gonna figure out our own term for it someday but that today is maybe not that day um okay so she wrote today the buffalo niagara region is among the most segregated metropolitan areas in the united states an astonishing 85 percent of black buffalo residents live east of main street the city is the third poorest in the united states with with more than a third of the population living in, po- in poverty, including 37% of African Americans. For poor and working-class people, rising rents in gentrifying neighborhoods are creating a significant strain. More than half of residents are considered rent-burdened, doling out more than 30% of their incomes to cover housing costs. Almost half of the children in the city are poor, the fourth highest rate of any large city in the country. In 2014, 54% of black children in Buffalo lived beneath the poverty line. So just to to give you kind of like a a flavor of of Buffalo in that way. It's very it's a very poor city. Um and we often rank yeah, like sixth most segregated or like within the top 5. Um it seems to fluctuate around fifth most segregated city in the country. Um, So, the attack on Martin Gugino captured how the city's spending priorities could contribute to political unrest. For those that may not be aware, when Black Lives Matter protests were continuous in the summer of 2020, Buffalo got national attention when someone captured footage of a 75-year-old man named Martin Gugino speaking to the police. Apparently provoked by Gugino's remarks... An officer shoved him to the ground, cracking his skull and causing a brain injury that would leave him hospitalized for a month. Two officers were suspended with pay and charged with assault. As an act of protest against that punishment, 57% of our city's officers quit their assignments to a crowd control unit. Our police take around a third of our city's budget. A third of our city's wealth goes to this corrupt-ass police department. This is important because Byron Brown, the now five-time incumbent mayor, was the first African-American mayor of the city. Brown has been a favorite of businesses and developers, presiding over a so-called transformation of Buffalo's downtown. This transformation has not only displaced low-income housing projects on our waterfront, but it's made the historically black east side of the city Basically wide open to developers through eminent domain laws. And that was that side of the city that Kianga Yamada Taylor was saying that 85% of our black population live. Pressure from developers to expand a massive medical campus, which is seen as crucial to the region's economic growth, created more chaos. Within its first five years, the Brown administration authorized an astonishing 5,000 demolitions across the east side, including hundreds in the Fruit Belt, which is a historically black neighborhood. Between 2010 and 2016, the area's black population fell and its white population increased. And returning back to the police, its budget increased by 54% during Brown's tenure. In 2012, Brown created a special police unit called Strike Force, which was unleashed in black communities as a politicized crime-fighting venture. And this has since been disbanded because of how unethical it is. Um, But all of that is to say that India Walton was certainly an unlikely successor in the eyes of many Buffalonians. A black woman who identifies as a democratic socialist, she became a mother at 14, as well as a high school dropout and a welfare recipient. She survived sexual assault and domestic violence. Walton went on to become a nurse, and she left that profession to work as a community organizer. She told Kianga Yamada-Taylor in that interview for The New Yorker that, quote, Socialism has been weaponized against the people it benefits the most, and we have bought into it. It is my job to change that narrative, to change the culture, and to say that it's okay. And that Fruit Belt neighborhood that I mentioned before, in 2017, the Fruit Belt Community Land Trust was formed, with Walton as the executive director. The following year, Buffalo Common Council agreed for the transfer of some 50 lots to the land trust over a period of five years. And so uh, Walton said, for this area, we depend on outside developers to come in and do the community development. But this is development that's coming from the community and controlled by the community. So it's kind of a radical idea, but it's also a great thing. And, you know, she really captured a lot of voters' attention because Buffalo is in desperate need of change. Um, There was a lot of momentum behind her campaign and her policies. Under normal circumstances, in a liberal city, the winner of the Democratic primary wins the race. Republicans have such a minimal presence in Buffalo politics that they didn't even put forward a candidate this year. But as I mentioned earlier, we're living in a twilight zone baby-throwing-a-tantrum version of reality. So instead of supporting his party's nominee, Brown launched this write-in campaign for the general election. Drawing on hundreds of thousands of dollars in support from local business interests, he has tried many conservative campaign tactics on Walton, raising fears about the Black Lives Matter movement and socialism. There's local ads running all the time about how she's going to destroy the police department, while which that would be amazing if true was just a fear tactic.
2: Yeah, like she specifically was like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Right.
0: Unfortunately.
1: Um, Right. I wish any social candidate was as powerful or principled as people think
0: they are exactly (laughs) um his campaign also created stamps and so they like stood outside of all the voting locations to give stamps to people who could like write in his name that way um just very intense um so as i mentioned before successful writing candidates are rare but brown had the benefit of powerful supporters the family of Jeremy Jacobs, a billionaire businessman and Trump donor with corporate ties to the city, contributed nearly $30,000 to Brown in the week before the primary. The statewide lobby for real estate industry has spent more than $300,000 in support of Brown's campaign. In recent days, a conservative PAC called Good Government for New York has spent $30,000 on anti-Walton mailers and phone calls to Buffalo voters. And all the local media is spun against Walton. The things I wanted to highlight about this race is just how much is stacked against people who run grassroots campaigns. I didn't even scratch the surface of the amount of corporate fuckery that the Brown campaign is involved with, but I will leave a link to the Public Accountability Initiative, which is a Buffalo organization that finds where corporate money is in government and exposes those ties through power mapping. Um, but on a slightly lighter note, uh, in our, in our sister city of Rochester, aforementioned Susan B. Anthony home, uh, three democratic socialists were elected in, in that little city. Very exciting. Thank you for coming to my Buffalo Ted talk. (laughs) Yeah, there were, I mean, the Buffalo election was
2: like super important. There were a few other elections that you, I have seen or heard about that we just wanted to touch on um to review the results from this past week. So the first one we wanted to talk about is Virginia's gubernatorial election. This took place between uh Glenn Youngkin who's a Republican and Terry McAuliffe, McAuliffe, I don't know how to say this guy's <laughs> name. McAuliffe. It- Whatever. McAuliffe, McAuliffe. What? Well,
0: Terry, he's a Democrat.
2: Terry he previously served as Governor of Virginia from 2014 to 2018. Um, some of you may remember that currently holding the office of Governor in Virginia is, of course, blackface governor aka Democrat Ralph Northam. Um, Youngkin, the Republican was endorsed by Trump but didn't actually like campaign with him or anything like that. He's sort of seen as like this more refined Republican by you know people who care about that shit, but McAleaf said he was, running using, um, quote, racist dog whistles. And um, actually, this is, like, objectively true. Um, uh, Youngkin, the Republican, was trailing in the polls until about, like, the last month when he really started going off about education and critical race theory. You may have, like, seen the shit floating around where a white mom was like, oh, no, my precious white son is simply too fragile to read Toni Morrison, um, and was, like, complaining about... um, uh, beloved being assigned in classrooms and how um, her son shouldn't have to read that. Uh, and I mean, like, this really raises the question of like who the the true snowflakes are. Um, but go off, I guess. Uh, it actually might be worth pausing for just like a moment to talk about critical race theory. I don't really think that we've talked about it on the podcast, um, but critical race theory is. Like something that you learn about in law school. Um, I read critical race theory for my oral comprehensive exams as a PhD candidate. It is not something that is being taught at the elementary, middle, or high school level. It's like a legal theory about the ways that racism um, infects and impacts American society, especially, again, through the legal system not that it matters that that's not being taught in schools because it's being used as like a boogeyman to essentially mean anything that I makes me feel uncomfortable as a white person but this was like a really big issue in the Virginia race um and I think it's likely to be a preview of stuff that we're going to see in house and senate races in 2022 um so buckle up for that it looks terrible um And just to like (laughs) just to sort of conclude on the Virginia situation, um, I believe that I think it's the House that that went Republican, but the Senate stayed Democrat may have that backwards. But anyway, it's not totally under Republican control. There are, however, some like pretty significant consequences to this loss. Um, For example, the only thing standing in the way of the state rescinding the voting rights of everyone who's ever been convicted of a felony is an executive order from the governor. Um, and that's like a policy, for example, that Yunkin is pretty likely to overturn. Another big um election that took place was the New Jersey gubernatorial election. Um, as of the time that we're recording this, which is Wednesday night, it is still too close to call. Um, I heard a commentator on NPR today being like, oh, it's a really bad sign when New Jersey doesn't go Democratic, but like this is the state that gave us fucking Chris Christie. Um, like he was the governor when I lived there seven years ago, uh, I saw him at a college football game one time, his kid went to my school. He was still governor when he ran for president in 2016 and embarrassingly lost like horribly. He didn't even stop being governor until 2018. Like we only had a democratic governor of New Jersey for like four years. So this is just stupid to me. Um, so yeah, anyway, they, they may be like reliably, Democratic and presidential elections as of late, but like, it's really not that wild for a Republican to win there as governor. Um, they did relevant, let
1: women vote in the 1800s though. So. They did. And they came out with the the Jersey Shore.
2: <laughs> but both of these things are true about New
1: Jersey. Um, However, people can't pump their own gas there. And it's quite frankly weird.
2: Uh, <laughs> so I, when I'm driving between State College, Pennsylvania and New York City, New York, I always stop for gas in Pennsylvania because I feel very weird about somebody else pumping my gas for me in New Jersey. I I have to go to the Pennsylvania Wawa's, not the New Jersey Wawa's. Yeah.
1: My, one of my good friends is from New Jersey and I literally had to teach her how to pump her own gas like a couple of years ago. Yeah. She was just like, I literally don't know what to do. I've never done this. I was like, You're in your late 20s. We need to figure this out. Anyway, New Jersey is a wonderful state with wonderful politics. (laughs) And it is
2: relevant just to note that both New Jersey and Virginia almost always elect governors of the opposite party from the current president. So this has been true since like the Reagan era, basically, um, with few exceptions. So again, it really shouldn't be that big of a surprise that a governor or that a Republican may end up being governor of New Jersey, but I digress.
1: Almost like um, people don't trust either political party and whoever's in office, they don't like.
2: Yeah. Um, what if? What if? The last like major thing I wanted to cover is not about political parties, but it's actually about a, a referendum in Minneapolis. Um, and that's about police reform. Um, And the way that NPR is covering it is as follows approximately 56% of voters rejected a ballot question that would have removed the Minneapolis Police Department from the city charter and replaced it with a public health oriented Department of Public Safety so on its face this is obviously it's not a good thing that this measure lost but i think it's worth noting that it's not like the measure was like extremely radical or anything to begin with um and so i thought it would be worth reading the text of the ballot measure in full which goes as follows shall the minneapolis city charter be amended to remove the police department and replace it with a department of public safety that employs a comprehensive public health approach to the delivery functions Delivery of functions by the Department of Public Safety with those specific functions to be determined by the mayor and city council by ordinance, which will not be subject to the exclusive mayoral power over its establishment, maintenance and command, and which could include licensed peace officers in parentheses, police officers, (laughs) some Orwellian shit going on there, licensed peace officers, if necessary to fulfill its responsibilities for public safety with the general nature of the amendments being briefly indicated in the explanatory note below, which is made a part of this ballot. So this is all legalese. There's an explanatory note that's attached below, as they promised, which says, basically to put it into more plain English, this amendment would would, would create a Department of Public Safety combining public safety functions through a comprehensive public health approach to be determined by the mayor and council. The department would be led by a commissioner, nominated by the mayor, and appointed by the council. The police department and its chief would be removed from the city charter. The public safety department could include police officers, but the minimum funding requirement would be eliminated. So to try to break it down a little bit more, this was not going to eliminate the police altogether. But it would have done some good things like changing the city charter such that it no longer mandates a certain amount be spent on policing every year, which is currently in the city charter. Minneapolis also has a minimum number of officers who are supposed to be employed by the city. And that's actually a number that it hasn't met since a bunch of people quit last summer, which, like, deuces, great. Um, and the ballot measure would also have made the police more directly controllable by the city council. I also wanted to just, like, note the way that this was being put forward by the official yes campaign, which were the people that were most directly behind the sort of grassroots movement to get this thing passed. And the first thing on their website is the text of the amendment or the text of the the measure. The thing that immediately follows it is an FAQ. And the first question on the FAQ is the following. Does strike and replace the department strike and replace the police department with the department of public safety mean abolish or defund the police? I know we're all asking this. They have an answer. The answer is quote, no, it does not. This has been a lie perpetuated by the handful of very wealthy and powerful people who want to keep the police Federation stronghold on the city. The Minneapolis police department as a container for police officers will be replaced with the department of, of public safety. So it's just changing containers, they're saying. They're are you continuing- saying that police lie?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and continue, politicians?
2: Police- <laughs> yeah, this is not even the police. This is the people that the police were going up against. Like, the police didn't want this thing to pass. The people that were, like, mo- like, directly behind trying to get this passed are the ones that are like, we'll just put police in a different container. And so they continued, police officers will be relocated to that expanded container allowing for other types of professionals experts and strategies in crisis response and violence prevention. So they're like, what if we just added some social workers to the mix, but kept police basically. Um, and then the dream job for me, that's why I'm
1: doing (laughs) it. So
2: he's training to be a master of gender and a master of social work. And that is all going to culminate in her being a police officer light. Um, yeah. Love that for you. Mm-hmm. Dietfully. So
1: <laughs> there are very copy social workers in my program, but that's that's a different story. I'll, I go,
0: I'll get them.
1: Literally, this dude, sorry, this is a tangent. This dude who's awful, obviously he's a dude, was like we were talking in class about how police are bad. And this dude was like, I don't think that social workers should be hostile towards the police because it'll make them like see us as the enemy. We should like work together. And luckily like most people in the class were like, absolutely not. Um, But he exists. Yeah. You
2: hate to see it. Yeah. The, just to continue elaborating on this, the, the sort of official website for the pro Um, side of this question their second faq is what does quote could include police officers if necessary unquote mean and the first sentence of their answer to that is the people of minneapolis agree that there are certain situations where it is necessary for a well-trained and disciplined police officer to respond to a situation the people
1: of minneapolis do not agree (laughs) It's just like,
2: it's so wild. They're trying so hard to be like, we still love cops. We just want to change some things about cops. So it's just important, I think, as we're talking about this, to note that it's not like we're looking at an abolitionist measure. Like, this is, you know, it still would have been better had this passed, but it's not like abolitionism was on the ballot. It was some lukewarm, not really anti-cop shit. And that didn't pass. And like, I don't know. I don't think that this is a referendum on abolitionism or anything like that. Because that's not what was on the ballot to begin with. But anyway, it's also important to note that it's not all bad. Laura mentioned we got some Democratic Socialists elected in New York. Um, Richie Floyd is a Democratic Socialist who won a seat on the St. Petersburg, Florida City Council. Not a lot of socialists getting elected in Florida, Mm. um, but we've got one. So that's very exciting. And it's also probably worth noting that um, Larry Krasner, who's Philadelphia's quote unquote progressive prosecutor, won re-election by a landslide. Um, You know, I'm not personally fully convinced that progressive prosecutors are a real thing, um, but it's still better than the alternative, you know, the, the person that he was running against. So, you know, there's, there's that, I, I suppose.
0: Um, we had some folks in our discord tell us some good news, uh, as well, or, um, you know, I'm just going to read the good news rather. Um, and, yeah, let's and hear it. someone said that four out of seven socialist Somerville, uh, Somerville's like a suburb of Boston, suburb basically. Of Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so four out of seven uh, city council candidates won who were socialist. Very nice. And in St. Paul, they won the strongest rent control ordinance ever. Um, Very cool. And I think that's what we got. That's That's the good news <laughs> from our Discord. That is vast. <laughs> <laughs> we were mostly bummed today on the Discord. But who would be surprised that a bunch of socialists who aren't fans of the state the way that it's currently run would be disappointed on a day like elections. Anyway.
1: (laughs) Also as established, we have we have a sad bunch of listeners. So
0: (laughs) it's always a little
1: we're always a little bummed in the Discord, you know? Except when we're sharing hot
0: selfies.
1: That's true. No, there's uplifting channels. Sorry to everyone on the Discord for roasting you. We love you.
0: You know, fuck around and find out. That's all I got to say about the Discord, you know? Absolutely.
1: Um, Okay, so apparently on this episode, I'm just here to read us quotes.
0: I love this, though. You, you're grounding us in this, like, literally what Sagittarians are known for is, like, philosophy and things like that. And so I love that you're, like, taking these, like, tangible things and you're like, and I'm going to apply it to these theories and things like that. It's perfect.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, I wasn't following a single election. The only one I really knew much about was the India Walton one, just from, like, Laura and people on Twitter. But I also can't say I was, like, closely following, just like it appeared in my feed.
0: Just, I'm um, assuming following me and the people you know from Buffalo through me, too. Yeah. <laughs> like- yep,
1: yep. Yep. That's pretty much it. Uh, so yeah, I, I was not following anything. Um, I'm currently not a registered voter. Fucking brag bitch. Um, no, I just, when I changed over my license from Pennsylvania to Illinois, I no longer became registered. You just will in
0: time to vote for Ambria.
1: Um, I actually can't, <laughs> I can't vote for Ambria because I'm not in her like ward that she's running in. Oh. Um, so luckily I get to stay unregistered because I, I would but register for if I could all of you for who live <laughs> there
0: should. Yes. Obviously. Yeah, if you're listening to this podcast, you already know that. But anyway, read <laughs> us that quote.
1: <laughs> if and when there's a time to register, I will. Please don't cancel me. Um, the time is just not now. Anyway, <laughs> so this is from Feminism for the 99%. As you might remember, we had Chinzia Arruza on the podcast uh, a couple years ago at our Philly live show, which she's one of the authors of this book. So I'm going to read a bit from like the way the book is laid out is like thesis number blank and then kind of a title. So I'm reading from thesis 10. Capitalism is incompatible with real democracy and peace. Our answer is feminist internationalism. Today's crisis is also political. Paralyzed by gridlock and hobbled by global finance, states that once claimed to be democratic routinely fail to address pressing problems at all, let alone in the public interest. Most of them punch on climate change and financial reform when they don't openly block the path to solutions. Captured by corporate power and enfeebled by debt, governments are increasingly seen by their subjects as handmaidens of capital, which dance to the tune of central banks and international investors, IT mammoths, energy magnets, and war profiteers. Is it any wonder that masses of people thought the world had given up on mainstream parties and politicians that have promoted neoliberalism, including those of the center-left? Political crisis is rooted in the institutional structure of capitalist society, The system divides, quote, the political from, quote, the economic, the, quote, legitimate violence of the state from the silent compulsion of the market. The effect is to declare vast swaths of social life off limits to democratic control and turn them over to direct corporate domination. By virtue of its very structure, therefore, capitalism deprives us of the ability to decide collectively exactly what and how much to produce, on what energetic basis, and through what kinds of social relations. It robs us too of the capacity to determine how we want to use the social surplus we collectively produce, how we want to relate to nature and to future generations, and how we want to organize the work of social reproduction and its relation to that of production. Capitalism, in sum, is fundamentally anti-democratic.
0: Mike we drop love once again. <laughs> Mike drop once again. Wow. Yo, she was so nice, too. She was just like Oh, she's an angel. I can't believe she was just like down to hang with us for this yeah. very odd event that we decided to have.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, she was great and is very smart, obviously.
0: Um, And if you wanted to see the video version of that, oh. you have access to it. By joining our Patreon at patreon.com/slash season of the bitch. That's a throwback. I almost forgot we did that. <laughs> yeah, that is
1: a throwback. I was just thinking of it when I was like looking through this book for for some good quotes.
0: Yes. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at season of the bee. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. You can send us an email at season of the at gmail.com. And you could just, you know, have a good day, I guess.
1: You can just have a good day.
0: You can just have a good day as a treat.
1: Though, as a treat, though it will be a
0: better day
1: if you follow us, give us your money, join our <laughs> Discord.
0: <laughs> exactly. That's science, baby. <laughs> okay. Love you all. Love you. Love you. Baby. Bye. Of the bitch.